take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn them to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention. We're going to look at that passage in just a moment. I'm going to read a couple verses from it. But for now, I'd just like to have you uh, have it open with you. Uh, if you want to as well, there's a blue sheet of paper in the bulletin. If you want to take a couple notes as we move through this passage of Scripture together today, you're more than welcome to do that. And I will mention, as I often do, too, uh, if you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible at all, please feel free to take one of the ones in the pews. Uh, we have extra. We bought extra with the intention of giving them to you. We don't want you to leave without a Bible if you don't have one. So uh, make sure that you um, take one if, if you so desire. I think perhaps my perception is off, I don't know, but it seems that we have had this summer an unusual number of thunderstorms. It seems like I hear thunder every day. Um, I don't know uh, if I'm accurate in that perception or not, but I do know that it certainly would have made America's most famous kite flyer very happy. Uh, when thunder rumbled into the skies and gray clouds rolled over Philadelphia 200 years ago, uh, everybody else scrambled to get inside. Uh, but Ben Franklin grabbed his kite and ran outside. Uh, it must have been strange. He must have looked strange. Until Ben Franklin had invented the lightning rod, lightning was one of the great dangers to cities. Cities would burn when they would be struck by lightning until he invented that piece of metal. Uh, So it was strange for him to be running out into the storm to fly a kite. But to accomplish what he wanted in his electrical experiments, Ben Franklin had to fly a kite in a storm. You can't catch lightning uh, without the right sort of weather system, and you can't get a kite in the air unless there's wind. Last week I used kite flying as a word picture for marriage. I, w- I was particularly after the idea that submission in marriage, what Paul calls wives to in this passage, is a response It's a response on the part of wives to the loving leadership of their husbands. And without that leadership, submission is is a challenge, a very difficult challenge. For a kite to fly, it needs a breeze to set it aloft. Uh, Today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the breeze, the wind. Our subject for today is the loving leadership to which the Bible calls husbands. We started last week with wives because they're first in the text. But it seems, at least by emphasis of length, Paul is most concerned here with the role of husbands in shaping a marriage. If, if you count them in the, in the Greek language, there's 40 words that Paul says to wives, 115 words for men. He started talking about submission as an expression of spiritual maturity. If you're filled with the Spirit, this is what your life will look like. But he seems most interested in creating the environment in the homes of the Ephesians where submission flourishes, where it makes sense, where submission is safe and a source of blessing. Uh, Someone asked me after last Sunday if it was ever okay to say no to her husband. Is that ever okay to say no? And I, of course, the answer is, is yes. But according to these verses before us, marriages that are shaped by the gospel are to be places where the answer to that question is, why would you ever want to? Why would you ever want to with a husband who's so committed to your well-being, your happiness, and flourishing? Does that sound like your relationship? Don't answer that question. 
There's some hard words in this passage. Uh, James the Apostle said that the Bible is sometimes like a mirror, and we we look in the mirror and it shows us our faults. I feel the weight of this mirror this morning from Ephesians chapter uh, 5. And when I'm describing, as, as I'm describing what I think this text says to us, men, and calls us to, one of the questions that's going to come across your mind is, why? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to make those sacrifices? Why would I want to deny myself like that? This does not sound easy or convenient or particularly pleasurable. I have two reasons in mind in answer to that why question, even before we dig into the text. The first, I think, is going to be evident as we look at this text. Do this for your own good. You need to do this for your own good. During one of my uh, premarital counseling sessions several years ago, uh, somebody, one of the young men, uh, kept repeating a mantra that he learned from his father. You've probably heard it. Maybe I've said it before. Happy wife, happy life. This is model for marriage, right? Well, that's a paraphrase, a rather loose paraphrase of Ephesians 5. But there's another reason why we want to take up this challenge of these paragraphs I think, I believe that there is no other center beside the gospel that will hold in your marriage. What's at the center of your marriage? What would you describe as the glue that's keeping the two of you together? Maybe habit. I've been around you this long, I can keep going. Habit. It'd just be too inconvenient to not be around you. It's easier to to be married than not at this point in time, right? Or maybe uh, the center, the glue is is parenting. You have this huge, colossal task of raising these little children to mature adults, and so that's the center. That's the glue. Um, Maybe it's a hobby, square dancing or movies or golf or your church ministry. Uh, you are serving machines and you do it really well together. Uh, maybe it's tradition. We always stick together in this family and I'm not going to be the first one to break that tradition. Or your socioeconomic class. I believe that over time, those centers will not hold like the gospel itself. No other message, no other activity, no other commitment will be able to call yourself out of yourself and build a life-sustaining relationship like the gospel does. So we heed what Paul says. Now, if you look at these verses, you'll find Paul has one basic idea in mind, one basic command for husbands, and it's simple and it's easy and it's repeated often in these verses. Husbands, love your wives. That's what he says. And his emphasis here in this passage is on how. How are you supposed to love your wife? And he uses two images. They're not buried in the text. No one will leave this morning saying, how did he ever find that? I would never have found that in the Bible. It's here. It's plain. That's good. Uh, What I want to do is I want to go over these two images with you. I want to point them out to you, explain them, and then I want to, from those images, talk about some basic commitments. If you're going to love your wife like this, what sort of commitments does a husband need to make? So that's the plan this morning, and we're going to start with the first image where Paul says, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Again, It's plain in the text, but let's look at it here. Verse 25. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, Paul may be talking about marriage here. And there may be 150 words, 15 words for husbands, but there's an awful lot there about Christ in the church. In fact, you read Ephesians 5 and you ask yourself, is Paul talking about theology or is he talking about marriage? And the answer to that question is yes. In fact, there's a lot here about Christ's love in this passage. Um, Paul is, is plugging into an image that we all know that the Bible uses frequently. He is using in these verses marriage as an image of Christ's love, and he sets that in the context of some Jewish and Greco-Roman customs of the day. In this culture into which Paul is writing, uh, your parents were responsible to ensure that you chose a good partner. Now, these were not soulless, romanticless uh, arranged marriages like we think of when we think of arranged marriages. Uh, Paul, the uh, parents would certainly, good parents would certainly take your thoughts and opinions into consideration, but it was ultimately their responsibility to make sure you married a good partner. Now, he's talking to men, so let's move down that road a little bit here. Um, it, your parents wanted to ensure th- that you as a son married a worthy bride. A woman from a good family who was beautiful and intelligent and hardworking. You wanted your son to marry up, right? Um, someone better off. And once uh, they arranged, they found this, this marrying up type gal, they, there would be a betrothal. In the betrothal, the, gro- the groom would come to his bride, uh, a public thing. Uh, a betrothal is kind of like engagement on steroids. And, and he would come and he would say... Um, I am betrothed to you. You will be a wife to me. Uh, 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 something like that. Uh, I'll take you to be, I'll take you to myself as my wife. And they were betrothed. At that point in time, he would go and prepare a house, a place where they would live together. Right before the wedding, the bride, uh, with the aid of her parents, would prepare herself. This is the family's responsibility to get the bride ready. It was a ritual bath. They would, she would take a ritual bath, which was uh, something that was both tradition and in the days before deodorant and necessity. And once she was clean, her body would be adorned. Uh, finest clothes that the family had, the most wonderful jewelry that the family had, perfume, uh, her hair would be done, her nails would be spotless, she would be ready. The bridegroom would come, he would uh, pick her up from her house, take her to his home where they would have a wedding ceremony, a wedding feast, and uh, their married life would begin. That was the custom. That's what happened. And everybody who read Ephesians would be familiar with this. But it's not what Paul portrayed here in this passage. What Paul is describing in these words is not the betrothal of an intelligent, attractive, hardworking, beloved woman. He's actually describing the marriage of an unlovely, impure, diseased, and rejected woman. And the groom, Christ himself, has come and he has betrothed himself to this unattractive, diseased, uh, rejected woman. 
And he himself has prepared her. He himself has washed her and made her beautiful so that he can present her to himself. It's a a parent's job. Christ did it himself. And then their union could be consummated. There are parallels between what what the prophet Ezekiel describes and what Paul writes here. In fact, I want want you to show them. I want want you to see them here. Uh, We don't read Ezekiel very much, so open your Bible to the white pages where it creaks, to the book of Ezekiel, all right? I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, It's really big, and it's in the Old Testament. It is after the book of Psalms, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. So uh, come to Ezekiel chapter 16, and you'll find, I think Paul was meditating on this passage of Scripture when he wrote Ephesians 5. Ezekiel 16. Uh, Here's another image very much like what we just read. Uh, Follow along as I read from Ezekiel 16. All right? (laughs) I was in a... um, a class, a Bible class once. It was actually graduate school, a Bible class, and somebody raised their hand and asked the question about the prophet Ezekiel, which wasn't in my Bible until I realized she meant Ezekiel. If you ever say Ezekiel, bless you for mentioning that prophet. It'll be fine. Okay, so here we go. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say... This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite, which means you don't have the right kind of genes. Your your genetic background is not pretty. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on that day you were born, you were despised. Then I, the Lord says, I passed by you and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you in an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. See how that image parallels what Paul is describing in Ephesians 5? God, in in the book of Ezekiel, finds Israel rejected, alone, helpless, destined for death, and he rescued her, washed her, oversaw her growth and development, and clothed her with beauty, uh, and made a covenant with her. Jesus does the same thing in in, uh, Ephesians 5, as Paul describes it. And you can understand here how this metaphor communicates the gospel message itself. 
the ugliness that is ours, the ugliness that we own, the undesirability that we have comes because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God, we are utterly unattractive, stained and polluted. Sin stains. It makes us dirty. If you've ever talked to somebody who has been, uh, who has engaged in, uh, well, anybody, particularly young women who have engaged in particular uh, sexual sins, and especially if she has been the victim of someone else's sexual sin, one of the things that she will say to you is, I feel dirty. I feel dirty. I have been polluted by somebody else's sin. We've been polluted by our own sin. We have been polluted by other people's sin. Sin pollutes, it defiles, it brings death. It brings spiritual death, eternal death, permanent separation from God where we know nothing of His love and all we know is God's righteous wrath. And the text says that Christ, though, gave Himself for us. It's an obvious reference to the, to the cross. It's the place where He bore our sin debt, where He absorbed into Himself all of the pollution and all of the dirt and all of the defilement of sin so that we might be washed and cleansed and made pure. Not just the sins that we committed, but the sins that have been committed against us. And the glad declaration of the Bible is that if you're in Jesus Christ, you have been washed. You have been cleansed. Uh, The text says, you have been washed with water through the Word. That is, the Word is the means by which the washing is applied to us. The Word of the Gospel message itself. It's a message that we hear and we respond to. And hearing that Word and believing that Word betrothes us to Christ. And He is now in the process of making us, this church, a beautiful bride. He's preparing a place for us, isn't He? And someday He's going to come back, call us to be with Him, and we'll go to His house and be with Him forever. Now, much could be said about these verses, but I, I want you to see that something that is crucial. Notice, Christ has done everything. He has done all of this. Christ did not come because, he's so attra- because we're so attractive to Him. It is not as if God the Father and God and the Son were looking down on earth and said, now, who is good enough for us to, to die for? There's a guy, he's a pretty stand-up guy. He... he he needs a little help. Jesus, why don't you go die for him because he needs a little help to get, to get here. There's a young lady. She's really trying hard. She's not as bad as her friends. She, she's pretty good. Why don't you go? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit looking down from eternity past could find no one that was attractive. No one that was not stained by sin, corrupted, uh, dirty and defiled. Christ has come, and He has done everything. He betrothes us to Himself. He washes us. He cleanses us. That's what the parents of the bride are supposed to do. Jesus did it Himself to present us to Himself. You cannot, there is no one in this room who will be attractive to God on their own. You cannot clean yourself up in order to grab God's attention. 
You can't wash yourself. You can't make yourself attractive by good deeds, by being better than other people, by uh, um, doing religious things. The gospel message is not about what you do in order to go to heaven. The gospel message is about what Christ has already done, and he has done it all. We proclaim this message and we respond to it. We believe it. It's a message about how Christ has come and died and paid the penalty for sin and how forgiveness and life are to all those who will believe, who will receive them, who will turn to Jesus Christ, uh, believing that he died and that he died uh, for us and that he's the object of your confidence, your hope. That's what the gospel message is. And that's the model for how husbands are supposed to love their wives. And to love your wife like that, I think, means making several commitments. I want to mention three of them. Three commitments of someone who's going to love his wife like this. It means, first of all, I will love my wife unconditionally. Unconditionally. Husbands committed to loving their wives like Christ love their their, um, wives unconditionally. Now, we're used to that word unconditional, uh, so I'll say it another way. I will love my wife whether she deserves it or not. Your affection for her, your response to her is not something that she earns, and you do not withhold or grant privileges based on her performance. Have you ever seen marriages like this? Marriages where they work on a scorecard, uh, scorekeeping system? Or... Um, or where everything is a system of rewards, I will love you if. I will treat you kindly if. I will be gentle with you if. And you fill in the blanks with whatever you want. You keep the house clean. You maintain your figure. You don't nag me. You cook nice meals. You remain cheerful. You let me have my space. I will love you if. Now, wives can do this too, by the way. Both husbands and wives can act as if sex and attention and kindness or time or money is part of the bartering system of marriage. You give me what I need, I'll give you what you need. We keep score in our house, right? That sort of conditionality is is totally absent from this passage of Scripture. Does your behavior toward your wife change based on what she does or how she treats you or what kind of mood she's in? Uh, if you really want to know that answer to that question, you should ask her. Do I treat you differently uh, based on what's going on around here? C.S. Lewis said this about a husband's headship. He's talking about headship. That's a word in this passage. This headship, this sort of love, then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, king of my castle, resident of my domain, receiver of all good and perfect things, Uh, This headship is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least. In in your marriage, does your wife give the most and receive the least? If, If so, that's really great. Whose wife is most unworthy of him, is in her own nature least lovable. Love my wife unconditionally. Here's a second commitment. I will love my wife sacrificially. Sacrificially. 
C.S. Lewis said, marriage for men is like a crucifixion. You should always be sacrificing something for your wife. Do you know, what, what are you sacrificing today for the, the benefit and the flourishing of your wife? Does she know what you're sacrificing today? Uh, when you get married, you give up the freedom of self-fulfillment. We use the phrase sometimes in our culture, going to the marriage altar. Going to the marriage altar. Uh, it, it comes from the fact of uh, some churches and their understanding of the Lord's Supper, where, where you celebrate communion, is an altar. This is not an altar. It's just a table with some juice and bread on it. It's not, it's not a, uh, uh, we're not sacrificing anything today. But when you get married, you come to the marriage altar because altars are a place of death and that's where grooms go. They go to the front of the church to die. Now, I, you're laughing, right? Some of you, some, some of you, some of you cynic in the room is thinking of 500 jokes about how painful marriage is, right? And how it feels like death. One of you, at least, I know, is tempted to look at your wife and say, baby, marriage to you is not like crucifixion. Suffocation, maybe, but not crucifixion. Somebody's thinking that this morning. Marriage is cruciform for husbands, not because of their wife and their quirks or their needs or their desires, but because you give yourself over to her best interest and not your own. Marriage is cross-shaped for men. Which leads me to my third commitment here, marriage of uh, the third commitment. I will love my wife purposefully. I will love my wife purposefully. Um, it's, it's unconditional love, it's sacrificial love with this particular purpose and particular focus in mind. And uh, since we're supposed to love our wives just as Christ, what purpose statements are here? Why did Christ love his wife and give himself up? You could say it in a couple of different ways. Verse 26 says, to make her holy. Or you could say from verse 27, to make her glorious. Or the text says, Radiant, to make her radiant. Uh, men, when you get married, you accept the responsibility for loving your wife like Christ loved the church, and it means that you accept the responsibility for nurturing the spiritual maturity of your wife. That's the purpose for which you love her unconditionally and for which you love her sacrificially, to nurture the spiritual maturity of, of her, to make her holy radiantly, beautifully, gloriously pure. She, now, she's responsible under Christ, that, that is true, for her own growth, for her own growth as a follower of Christ. But you have the privilege of nurturing further her personal and spiritual development for providing pastoral leadership in your home. Last week I suggested that headship in this passage means authority, authority with blessing, and here's where the blessing is. When you married your beloved, you committed yourself to unconditionally, sacrificially promote and provide for your wife's spiritual maturity. To use the gifts and the position of authority that God has given you to nurture her as she follows Christ. This is a daunting subject, and we could talk about this for a long time. But I, I want to uh, contain this conversation this morning, if I can, with, a, with a, a brief word that I want to say to the unmarried and a word that I want to say to the married. 
Uh, one of my goals during this time that we're studying Ephesians 5 in, under a microscope is I want to help single adults consider why they would get married or who they would marry. Uh, if I understand this correctly, uh, ladies, if, if you're dating a young man, he must be concerned about your holiness. In fact, by his level of concern for your holiness, you will be able to tell if he's worthy of your trust as a spiritual leader. When you'll get married, you will be affirming your willingness to follow his spiritual leadership. And if he's not concerned about it now, he is unworthy of your trust. Now, may I be a bit more frank? If your boyfriend pressures you or gladly engages with you in violating biblical standards of purity in your physical relationship, he is unworthy of your trust. The man you would entrust yourself to is not the sort of person who pressures you or takes advantage of you. In fact, he should be more concerned about your holiness than you are. He should be more concerned about your holiness than, your, than her parents are. He should be more concerned about your holiness than your dear sainted grandmother is. In fact, he should take the lead in this regard. And if he does not, he is unworthy of your trust. Now, a word to the married men among us. Uh, I want to encourage you again this morning, take up this responsibility. Take it up again and think about your life and your marriage and how you can embrace this privilege, this opportunity that you have to nurture spiritual maturity in your wife. Do all you can and sacrifice what you must to encourage your wife to glorious holiness. R.C. Sproul writes of a time that a young couple came to him for counseling and uh, the husband started by complaining and he said, She's changed so much since we got married. I don't know what happened to her, but she's not the same person that I married. And Sproul looked at him and said, I know exactly what happened to her. She started spending all her time with you. What did you do to her? Brian Chapel writes that his wife, uh, Kathy, uh, was a star in college. She got better grades than he did. She won all kinds of awards for her musical skills. She was recognized as a leader on campus. A few months, though, after they got married, uh, an appliance broke in their house. And he was running, just as they discovered this, he was running off to work. And he said, would you please, you're going to be here a little bit longer, would you be able to call a repairman? And to his shock, this confident woman that he had married broke down in tears and said, I can't do it, I can't do it. And he thought to himself, what have I done to you? How did I break your confidence so much? He goes on further to describe a time that he and his wife were at home and they hosted another couple for uh, for dinner and they were going to play Uno, that card game, after dinner. They were playing Uno, and you know in order to play Uno, uh, it was a new game to the couples, this is a long time ago, uh, you, you, had, you have to speak, you have, you have to speak, you put down the, the wild card and you have to say at least the color. Brian Chappell said, I was amazed, I was amazed because the wife, she didn't say anything, she wouldn't speak at all. So they, they kind of asked about this a little bit, and the man said, well... <laughs> My wife has said some things over the time that has really, have really just embarrassed me, so she knows that she can't speak in public unless she asks me first. 
They were having marital problems. Under your loving care, your wife is to excel in glory and beauty. She should blossom. She should flourish. Not despite you, but because of you. Because of your sacrificial love. Now, practically, how does this work? Some of you are thinking to yourself, you know, if the truth be told, my wife is more spiritually minded than I am. How can I foster spiritual maturity in her up... (laughs) She likes to learn. She likes to listen to things. She likes to read. There's a lot of words in here to read. I don't like to read. How am I supposed to? She's she's further down the road than I am. How am I supposed to nurture spiritual maturity in her? I I think what Paul is asking us to do, I'm going to summarize it in two words. Asking and initiating. Asking and initiating. First, asking. Ask yourself, in what ways can I help my wife grow? In what ways does she need to grow to become more like Christ? Now, you can ask that question in a self-righteous, patronizing way. As if, because you're her head, you are obviously smarter and more intelligent and more wise and more spiritual than she is. You can ask that question that way. And if you do ask that question that way, you're a jerk. All right? Uh, In fact, this is to be a humble... The truth of the matter is, if you ask this question, in what ways does my wife, can I help her grow? (laughs) You'll probably uncover more areas of where you need to grow than than you'll find in her. That's the way you're supposed to ask this question. Uh, How well do you know your wife's spiritual condition? Do you know where she's being tempted right now? How she's growing? What uh, her prayer life is like? What fruit of the Spirit is evident in her life? Ask those questions. And then initiating. Spiritual leadership at home, I think, is not about having all of the answers and being able to solve all the problems, but often it's about initiating. Um, you, your wife wants to encourage your spiritual growth too. That, that is true. But it's your responsibility in your marriage, in your family, to initiate most often. Start the conversations about spiritual things. Do you have, do you have um, some questions that you have in mind that you ask regularly that are helpful? Um, ask questions at the dinner table to draw your kids out about spiritual things. I, I have some questions in my arsenal. Um, one of the questions I ask, I think I've told you about this, I ask Sunday for lunch, what was your favorite song that we sang at church today? I mentioned this. Luke, his response is always the same. Did we sing I Love the Church? No, we didn't sing that today. Oh, because that's my favorite. That's what he always says. Um, ask them, uh, what mercies of God did we experience today? Because God's mercies are new every morning. What, 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 where did we see God at work today in our lives? Uh, that week, we, uh, actually just that day, we had experienced the generosity of someone in, in the church family. And Claire immediately mentioned the person's name and what they had done for us. Uh, What are you thankful for today around the tables? We're eating dinner here. What did you learn in Sunday school? How would you like to apply what we learned in church today? Take the initiative to read the Bible. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to exegete the Greek. Uh, But if you say to your wife, let's read. We're going to start with Philippians 1. Uh, uh, I'll start. Uh, Take the initiative to, to pray. Take the initiative to making sure you're involved in church. 
Take the initiative to see that your wife can go to Bible studies if, if she so desires. Take the initiative in overseeing what sort of standards you have for movie watching or television viewing in your home. When you have problems, take the initiative in solving them. If there is a cold, icy silence between you and your wife, you speak first. I'm sorry is a good way to start. Initiating leadership. Asking and initiating are ways in which your love will be purposeful. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Unconditionally. Sacrificially purposefully. That's the first answer to the question, how? Now, here's the second one. Love your wife like your own body. Love your wife like your own body. That's in verses uh, 28 and following. Look what it says here. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Again, this is not brilliant. It's here right in the text. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. Love your wife like Christ loves the church, and love your wife like you love yourself. Now, does that appear to be a diminishment of love? Christ's love, is there anything that surpasses Christ's love? That's pretty good. Now, uh, is Paul saying, if you can't handle that standard, at least love her like you love yourself? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, love your wife like you love your body, which you do every day in myriads of ways, and it's very practical. Love your wife to this extent, unconditionally, sacrificially, purposefully, and love her in myriad of ways, practically, every day. Those are the two, two, two standards. And, and here is motivation, actually, for loving your wife. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, understand, Paul is not here commanding us to love ourselves. Some people think that. Some people think that when uh, Paul here is writing, you've got to love yourself before you can love someone else. That, that, Paul is not commanding that. He assumes that you love your body. You love it by taking care of it. You feed it, you wash it, you baby it when it's sick, you pamper it. Some of you, some of you work really hard to train and shape your body so you can admire it in a mirror because you love your body. Now, I know there are people who do not love their bodies. I know they have struggles. They struggle with things like self-injury, horrible things, uh, great suffering. I understand that. There are other people who don't like their bodies because of how their bodies look. They say, "Um, uh, I don't like my body. Actually, you know what that sort of hatred of your body is? is It's love inside out. I love my body so much that it should look a lot better than it does. And I'm angry that my body doesn't look as good as as it's... My body is not worthy of the level of love I have for it and it makes me mad. That I hate my body is kind of love... Inside out. I know there are, there are exceptions here, but Paul, generally, you love your body. And it's evident in the fact that you feed it and you care for it. You nourish and cherish it. Your translation might say that. You're tender with it. And because you're in a one flesh relationship with your wife, she is part of your body. And she is rightly the object of your nourishing, tender care. 
Now, the text says that Christ does this. Christ cares for the church. You can see that all the way through the book of Ephesians. If you want to, you can read Ephesians 1 through 6. In what ways does Christ show that he nourishes and cherishes the church? Paul's amazed by this. In fact, he is amazed. He says, uh, a mystery. God has revealed to him the astounding truth of how much the one flesh union of marriage models the relationship between Christ and the church. That's, That's what he's talking about here. So I can ask you this morning, what did you do for your body today in order for you to come here and be presentable to us all? Thank you for showering and putting on clothes, getting ready to come. We're, we're all beneficiaries of that. You, you probably fed your body. What did you do today so uh, to extend that same nurturing, nourishing, cherishing to your wife? Here are two commitments that that I want to suggest to you for a man who wants to love his wife like his own body. Number one, I will provide for my wife's needs. I will provide for my wife's needs. The Bible calls all of us to work. There's nobody in here who doesn't work. Everyone works. But a husband is specifically responsible to provide financially, ensuring that the wife has all of the resources that she needs to prosper. That doesn't mean fur coats and pearls and Lexuses. Lexusi, Lexi. Cadillacs. Okay, that's not what that means. It means that she's got what she needs. And, and you, you put yourself and you put your family in situations where your wife's other needs can be met in, in small groups, in ministry, in church, in a community. I will provide for my wife's needs. Commitment number two, I will protect my wife from harm. I will protect my wife from harm. Think of the necessity of providing physical protection. You can think about harm in a number of different ways. There's physical protection. We have a rule in our house when we walk on the street. You ask my kids, they know. The rule is boys on the outside, girls on the inside. It's the way we roll or walk. Uh, you're a husband, so you investigate sounds in the middle of the night. We have an old house. It creaks a lot. My wife sleeps lighter than I do. Oh. Uh, John Piper writes about this. This Listen. This is too obvious to need illustration, I wish. If there was a sound downstairs during the night, and it might be a burglar, you don't say to her, this is an equal marriage, so it's your turn to check it out. I went last time. And I mean that even if your wife has a black belt in karate... After you've tried to deter him, that is the burglar, she may finish off the burglar with one good kick to the solar plexus, but you'd better be unconscious on the floor or you're no man. (laughs) That's written on your soul, brother, by God Almighty. Big or little, strong or weak, night or day, you go up against the enemy first. Listen how he finishes. Woe to the husbands and woe to the nation that send their women to fight their battles. Protect your wife from overwork. Protect her from the criticism and the harping of self-righteous, venomous critics. Protect her from the disrespect of your children. Nourish, cherish, like you do your own body. Next week we're going to be in Buffalo. And we'll see spread out on the windowsill. My in-laws have a simple ranch house and they have a big bay window in the front. And on the windowsill of my mother-in-law's bay window are violets. Lots and lots of violets. 
From what I understand, violets are hard to care for. They're, they're finicky. Uh, Mary Heisey has a big collection of violets. My mother-in-law's violets bloom and they grow and they reproduce and they're beautiful. She cares for them. Those flowers are a testimony to my mother-in-law's care, to her skill in nurturing their life. The church's beauty will one day be revealed as a testimony to the treatment of her Savior. And gentlemen, your wife's glory, how she flourishes and blossoms and blooms whether brightly or not so much, testifies to the skill with which you love her too. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are in need of your help. We are grateful to you that uh, what Paul is writing here is Uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit and the evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives because there is no way that naturally we can do what this passage says. Christ has set the bar so high for us. So we come before you. We come before you recognizing that we have much to confess and much to repent of. We confess to you that where we should be loving and sacrificial, we have been harsh and selfish. Where we should love with, with uh, abandon and uh, um, without regard to deservedness, we have been conditional. Uh, we have kept lists. Uh, we confess to you uh, that, that we have not protected our wives the way we should from criticism and from overwork and from uh, unrealistic expectations. We have much to confess to you, Father, today. And so we come before you asking you for your forgiveness and asking you for your help as we move forward. Pray for the men that are here this morning, the, the husbands. Oh God, help them to take at least one step in the right direction today. One, one thing that they, that they can do to move in the right direction of purposeful love. Grant us courage. Grant us opportunities. Grant our wives grace as we flub it up. I, I pray for the, the unmarried men. This bar is, is, is high. I pray that you would prepare them in the relationships that they're in for this sort of love. You will prepare us all to accept and to live this out as you plant the gospel deeply in us. So do that planting work. We're going to reflect here in a minute on, on Christ's love for us on the cross Plant the truth deep in us so that it would blossom and flourish in our lives. Give us gospel marriages, we pray, in dependence upon Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. We, we pray in dependence and with joy together saying, Amen.